Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. During the latest exhibition that we had, we were lucky to see a lot of artists come through our doors, and we were pleasantly surprised to have Leslie Graff come from back east, where she lives in Massachusetts, and we're able to convince her to come into the recording studio. Uh, She was on our hit list, and we recorded uh, an hour or so interview with her, talking about her work and her humanitarian efforts. Leslie has degrees from Brigham Young University, bachelor's and master's degrees. She is also a, uh, a therapist who works with uh, children and patients who are dealing with complex issues. She is a renaissance woman, if there ever was one. During our conversation, we talk about Rose D. Talk Dahl, a good friend of hers whose work she has in her home, and we also talk about the various projects that Leslie has worked on over the years. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Leslie Graff. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, this wasn't planned. You've been on my hit list for a very long time. <laughs> and and ever since uh, you submitted a work to last year's Zion Art Competition... And we'll get to what that work was, and we'll talk a little bit about that, because it, it, it fits into your Just Desserts series. But uh, you're, you're here for a good reason. Why are you all the way from, from Sutton, Massachusetts, finding yourself in Salt Lake? Um, well, I'm out here this weekend for meetings at BYU. I serve on the National um, Advisory Committee for Family, Home, and Social Science, so I help sort of advise think tank brainstorm on different ideas to sort of help the departments help them better serve students prepare them to come out into the world and do stuff. interesting so, i didn't i didn't know yeah. that such a thing existed i know it's not what our discussion is really about but give me an idea of what it looks like i, mean, I kind of picture like a, a un type situation <laughs> where everybody's Everybody's sitting in a giant circle or half circle discussing I wish. things. I like the giant circle. No, we sit at little eight person tables. Um, uh, but it's it's a it's actually one of the coolest things that I've ever been invited to do. So it's um, from various departments. They choose sort of a little handful of alumni. So I represent the School of Family Life, where my graduate degree is from. And you sort of come together, you do readings ahead of time on a specific topic, and then you sort of brainstorm, like, how do we better? Last year, we were discussing um, meeting the needs of women um, on campus Mm. and sort of reducing different inequities or different things that we see in research or ways to help women achieve more. This year, we're talking more about experiential learning. So it's sort of a... You get to sit there and talk with, you know, really interesting people um, who have various backgrounds, everything from senators to CEOs. And, you know, you sort of just come up with your ideas as small groups and you come back together as a big group. And then we also get to sort of talk within our specific departments about mm. issues they're facing and then student mentoring, which is really fun. So they come and sort of ask us for our wisdom. So you also get we to meet not that. just with faculty and on the admin side, you're you're meeting with the students. Yeah. Things. So it's That's really fun and they get to you know ask you questions and you don't know whether you're directing them in good ways or not but i always love to tell people things so it's fun to just connect with a I'm lot sure of different people advice. i'm so sure it's, it's awesome advice it's i like to empower students a lot i like people to go out and find the things they love and be successful and i think BYU is a great place to sort of start on that 
past. We've had so. a career as a teacher in various kinds of teaching. But well, look, let's get to that. Okay. But first, well, let's not get to that right now. Let's <laughs> let's start off as we always do in this podcast with a work of art. You've chosen a work of art that you want to start the discussion with. What is it? Who's it by? Okay, I chose Autumnal Journey, which is by Rose Daytok Doll. And I chose this piece for a lot of reasons. Um, this is a piece I'm lucky enough to have in my personal collection. Let's describe it. Okay, so it is a piece. It's a large piece, uh, 36 by 48. So it has Big. a nice scale, right? Which I always think scale is an important element of work that helps to convey things. And it shows Adam and Eve sort of clothed in coats of skins, sort of exiting there amid these sort of fall um, aspen Yeah, it looks, trees. it looks like aspen trees, yellowed leaves, and then you've got the whitish branches. And, and the color in this piece is very interesting, right? If you look at Adam and Eve and their skin tones, right, they're very much in these sort of blues, these cool tones, right? You very much can sense this sort of chill. You know, it's that, that autumn feel is very evident in the piece. And... The thing that absolutely captivates me about this piece is the look on Adam's face. There is this um, depth of thought that you can see in his expression. There's an intentness. There's an intensity. There's um, a sort of deliberation. You can tell he's in this space in his mind, kind of moving forward, but but with reservations, with questions, with sort of determination, but against and into something unknown, something changing, something colder. And I think that that really, for me, speaks to um, experiences we all know, these sort of um, existential human feelings and emotions, like how many of us go out into our lives and find ourselves in in situations of various contexts, but with those same feelings of, I don't know what's coming next. I don't know what's happening. I have to trust this or I have to go forward. That's the only direction I'm allowed to go. And I think too, you know, a work, a, a theme that's really important in my work. And so I feel a connection there is the intimacy of the mind, like Adam and Eve are together in this, but they're still having their own experiences. Right? Right. And, and it's very, they've got very different expressions. expressions. She's almost looking hopefully towards the future. And he's, he's looking I, down I'm projecting more. again because yeah. this is just me. I mean, I can't, I don't know exactly what her intent is. He looks like he's, he's moving forward, but, halted halted and looking somewhat back and something that just struck me as i looked at this i didn't even i've i've seen other pieces in this series that she's done of adam and eve i i've never seen this one um you're gonna have to loan it to a museum one of these days so that we can see it or else we'll just come and hang out in your living room <laughs> but i i it strikes me that they both look so young and i had the thought i look at so many young married people i've been married for 15 years which isn't for a lot of people, that's not very long. But I look at those who are just getting married now or who are just coming from home from LDS missions, and I think, you look like 12-year-olds, <laughs> right? You exactly. look like little kids. And here they look like little kids. She does especially. She looks very young. And why not? I mean, maybe they probably did look... Yeah, were they 40? I mean, who knows what, what age they were yeah. when they're, you know. But, but it, to, we would probably all look at them and think, wow, those are, those are youngins going out there. 
Well, and I think that speaks to the experience of so many people. You know, I would say young adults today, you know, how how many of them go into the world, even our contemporary world, and have questions and have concerns about where they're going, what the environment is, what it means, right? Trying to make the right decisions for their lives. And so much of the way we learn, I think, is through experience. Not, You know, I used to always think... um, I used to have a very different view of sort of life and choices that if you just tried hard enough, you would make all the right choices instead of realizing, no, Heavenly Father totally knows you're going to make wrong choices. Like it's sort of built into you because you're going to have weaknesses and flaws. And that, that the whole point of agency is learning through experience, which means mistakes, right? Like, but that's how you learn lessons often in deeper ways than than you expect, right? Sometimes it takes going through something to, to have something really sink in or to learn it in a different way. Right. So this piece, and I love um, something about Rose's work that I just love is her treatment of shadows because I find this to be so interesting. I would say in our culture, we tend to focus a lot on positive emotions, right? We tend to want to talk about everything that's happy and good and easy and hopeful And the truth is life has a lot of different emotions. And I think each emotion we have was given to us to learn something from. And it's easy for us to sort of push those aside or act like, no, no, I just have to focus on the good things. But everything we fear or desire, get angry about or sad about really tells us about things we love, things we value, things we crave, like what's really important to us. And so for me, she treats shadows in an interesting way. They're full of color. They're very deliberate colors. They're usually blues and purples, but there's rich tones to them. They're not just these flat shadows. And to me, that really speaks to the way that our hearts and difficulties and all of these emotions are very powerful and rich and nuanced experiences, not just these hmm. shadows and lights, right? So that's- there's, there's so much more to life and to be seen even in those difficult spaces. That's interesting because I would... I wouldn't have assigned um, to a technical choice of of color in shadow uh, I, something that would have been uh, it would have had that intent behind it. And but you're an artist; you think in these terms. This is is this how you think about your own work when you when you make a shadow when you in, insert a color? Is it associated with a with an idea that you want? I would say communicated. I don't do it in the same way that Rose does and i don't know that that's her intention but that's one thing that i see in the work right as as i look at all of her work shadows are always in some way still filled with light if you look at them right there's they're they're often still uh lighter values right but they have color that helps you know it's a shadow right because of the the coolness or the tones but there's they're treated so richly that to me it really speaks to that part of human experience like that the lights and the darks are treated so but for me I really do uh I think attached to those same concepts and Mm -hmm. elements um of the ambiguity of our experiences of Mm -hmm. the richness and diversity of our experiences most of my art seeks to ask questions or to make people think about something or to connect to those deeper existential experiences and where we find meaning. And so I would say I probably do it more in metaphor than say she does 
for me in a way of color mm. but to me it communicates the same sort of root concepts or those same mm. things well let's talk about you a little bit let's okay. talk about your background you're <laughs> so, from virginia um kind of i where were you born and raised uh all over so my dad did legal negotiations for the government he was in the air force so okay. i lived everywhere from i was born in arizona but i lived everywhere from south dakota to turkey um so i've kind of been all over and I think that was that's actually been a really interesting experience for me too in the way again that I think I connect with Rose that I didn't incubate in the same pond as a lot of other people so my experiences were never living in a place with a Mormon majority um, so I think even the way that I see or speak or talk about my beliefs probably comes from a very different place where I'm used to talking more to people who are not of my faith, but trying to share elements of my faith um, or the way that my faith sort of mm. directs how I think. But I have to use very different language and very different metaphors that people can say, oh, I totally feel that. Mm. I totally understand that. Now um, you, you, live in, you live in Sutton, Massachusetts. I do. Right? So tell, us, just, tell us where Sutton, Massachusetts is. So Sutton, Massachusetts is about 40 miles west of Boston. It's a little bit south and east of Worcester, if you know your Massachusetts geography. And if you know New England, too, we don't really do suburbs. We do small yeah. towns. So and you live in, I was joking earlier, you live in Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls. It is like it's that. Got a, it's got a gazebo it in the center It does have a gazebo in the town center. <laughs> and the one building which serves as our library, town hall, police station, fire station. You know, there's 100 kids in my son's is there graduating high school class. Is there a class. place where you can eat? great breakfast and there is not we actually really lack restaurants we just got our first grocery store last year which is pretty exciting how did did you end up in sutton so um we were living my husband and i were living in virginia at the time he was working for a startup and um the startup went under and so he was looking for a new job and took a job at bose and he designs their home entertainment products he's a mechanical engineer so we moved there but it was kind 16 of a, years it, it, ago. Bose, Bose isn't based there, is it? It is. It is? It's in Framingham. So, Oh, which is, so, yeah, that's just right next yeah. door, isn't it? So it's like just up the street, but it's a very different life than anywhere I had lived. New England was definitely its own animal and its own uh, place. And it's been a really cool place to raise my kids. Um, as far as Mormons go, though, it's about one out of a thousand people. So my kids have always been the only members in their school. There's just not, most people have never met a Mormon. So there it's, you're definitely a novelty and it's definitely a different place. We had in most of the places where, you know, the museum exhibits and places where I show my work are not in the company of any other LDS artists. So I know this isn't necessarily on the topic of art, but I've lived in places where um, I was by far the minority as, as a, uh, as a member of the church, but it had the strange effect of, um, often making my life more about the church because I became more of an advocate, more of a, of a representative, and also the people who were members of the church became more of my tribe because I was... They become like family. Yeah, right? That's, yeah. Is, is that the case with you? Yeah, I would say, you know, and our ward is huge. It's about an hour across, which you think really... like it's, yeah. So it makes it really tough, and it requires really significant commitments, and it does. It affects your life in different ways. I mean... You know, I think about the things I pull off. I was when I was painting my domestic series. I was also teaching early morning seminary and had three little kids, like one who was still like not sleeping through the mm. night, baby age. You know, like 
my husband was on the high counselor in the bishopric or like church takes a lot of demand because of there's just not a lot of people to to run the show and it it you do feel a responsibility to be out in your community and doing things and involved Mm. and and uh, I think in different ways you know I'm sort of the party house for my son's friends but it's like I love that and that's their sort of connection or experience to things so so you 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 live all over. You're you're kind of a, I hate this term, but kind of an army brat. Yes. <laughs> in the sense yeah. you're traveling around, and you're and you go to BYU for your undergrad. Mm-hmm. You study art. No. What do you study? So I studied elementary ed, which okay. I loved art growing up, but. You know, I actually finished high school really young and got through BYU really young. Why? But, Why? Um, I just did school quickly. <laughs> you just wanted to get it over with? You know, um, no, we sort of, we moved right before I started high school and the high school I came into, although a great high school was not in the same place where my previous school had been. And my freshman year of high school, my principal said, when do you want to go to college? And I was like, uh... Like, I'm 14. What do you mean? When do you want to go to college? And he said, you can leave whenever you want. So I chose to accelerate one grade, but I really didn't want to be sort of freakish. So I um, so I went off at barely 17. And I loved art growing up. But of course, it's one of those things that everyone says, like, um, you'll never make a living as an artist. Yeah. You know, the, the lines that you always hear. And it, it was scary if to me. If you can do anything else. Yeah, do like do the, else, do something of. else. And I did have a lot of other loves. And I had a lot of academic loves. And so while my art teacher was encouraging me to go to art school, like other kids in my studio high school class, and, you know, I'd taken museum-based lessons and stuff, I was like, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And I'm not sure I'm ready to abandon all these other loves to just go to art school and, and be a hundred percent all in. So I studied elementary education and I finished BYU in three years. So again, I was 19 when I graduated. So I was really young. I went and taught school for a year in Virginia. Um, then I went back to graduate school. What did you teach? So I taught first grade. So I taught sort of in between Richmond and Charlottesville and sort of a rural area, which Mm -hmm. I loved. It was so warm, so intimate, a small school experience and I just loved it. And then I went back to graduate school and got a master's in marriage, family and human development, which, you know, again, is something I absolutely love. And I maintain sort of a simultaneous dual career in that. So I still will teach and lecture. And I trained as a child life specialist at Johns Hopkins. So doing therapeutic play, psychological preparation. So what kind of, what, what um, kind of people, uh, issues are you dealing with when you do those things? Because it sounds like you know, that's, that's pretty specialized. It so, is. So how do people get recommended to you and who are your clients and what um, does that look well, like? Well, I work now in a lot of different capacities. So I'm on an expert panel for the Vascular Birthmarks Foundation. So I actually help train physicians around the world in sort of psychosocial issues related to vascular anomalies, which again, sounds really um, specific. So, but we get invited to places like Israel or Italy or India to train physicians. And I go with a group of doctors. I'm I'm the only one that's not a doctor. Um, Or I work with families, sort of helping them deal with sort of the psychological and emotional issues of living with different medical conditions, right? How, how does that you, impact your how life? How did you so. get into that? Did you have somebody that was dealing with it? No, you know. you knew or did you just increasingly as education come on, get... You find things. Find like when I was teaching school, I wanted to volunteer because again, I'm someone who really likes to be out 
you know, I feel like you have talents to be useful, right? Like God wants you to be useful in the world. And so I volunteered at a hospital and I found this profession of child life that I was like, I didn't even know this existed. And I'd always loved medicine and I always loved human development. I loved creativity. And so it was like, you're doing therapeutic activities. You're helping people cope with things that are difficult. And so it was sort of like, oh, this is a great fit for me. Like it combines sort of all of these loves that I have. And so I still do medical missions around the world too. I've gone with Operation Smile like this is, for years. This is a really... <laughs> see, I didn't I didn't know it was to this extent. And I kind of... You're throwing me for a loop a little bit because when I... Uh, um, a delightful loop. The, <laughs> the, the idea when you hear people say that they have a profession and then they do art or they write or they do poetry is usually... Um, neither one is on a professional level the other one is not. is not but you're working on a very professional level on that side of things but then on art you are you're working in in, in museum shows in massachusetts and texas and utah and california all over very high level in both both pl- places is it um well you are have you, are, to know are you just like getting i'm up a early big disruptor you know i <laughs> i'm a big disruptor of things that we sort of allow ourselves to see as rules but that aren't really there like who says you have to be one thing when you grow up and so it was actually in this article in this book and then a feature in that Forbes did on women in their 30s because I was arguing sort of like why can't you have multiple simultaneous careers why do we believe too that to be successful in one career Everything you do has to be focused on that one thing. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take point I'm gonna take a point with you on this one. Okay. Because I've got and and not that I know the answer, but it's just something that I believe for a while. Okay. I remember years ago I was having a conversation with an artist named Jacob Collins. He's based in New York, figurative artist, classic I know classical work. tradition. Yeah. Okay, so um, Jacob once said that he had interest in medicine. He had interest in dance. And he said, at some point, you have to choose. You're going to be a ballerina. You're going to be a doctor. You have to specialize. And I think that's true in some cases. I think that you do. I mean, you're going to go to medical school. You've got to do 20 years. Right. If you're going to become at the very height of it. Right. But it's it's not just that for somebody like Jacob Collins, who's not a church-going person. As a Mormon, there is this great equalizing force among mormonism which is family home evening um i the the teenagers going out to uh, mutual and and then uh, scripture time and then you've got callings and then you've got sunday as as a member of the church um i've often heard it explored and i've sometimes felt this myself you're somewhat at a disadvantage to people who aren't involved in that system oh yeah when it comes the to demands on your time and your so energy. so like on one hand Yes, I, I like the idea that you can do multiple things at once. But look, you're in the medical field, and therapy field, plus you're an artist. But maybe even more than those things, you're Mormon. I'm yeah. sorry, but and mom, you, you've got like, and your mom, you've you've got a huge time commitment that takes up. Oh yeah, ten hours. twenty hours a week in just you know going through through church required or or. <laughs> but see, this behaviors. is where this is where I argue it, and I think. The way, you know, like I create the art that I do because I studied the things that I studied. And I often look at people who go into art straight from just, I want to create art. I'm going to do art. And I think, but 
but for me, that passion, that drive, what I have to say, what I have to talk about comes from these other things. So there's a symbi- so symbiosis there is, there's between a symbiosis, And there's also the way that it affects your work, right? Like I would say, you know, I look at people in child life and there's issues with compassion, fatigue, burnout. But I'm like, if I'm not spending all my time there, I get to come back and forth in these ways that they refresh and build each other, right? And I also think that it changes how you think, right? So if I'm doing things that are very technical or therapeutic in this aspect, and then I come and I'm doing things that are very creative and open-ended in this sense, it changes how I think, right? And I think if we want to innovate things, if we want to grow things, that happens when you bring diversity in, right? It it, it happens when you have lateral thinking, not just linear thinking. And so while I respect that for certain people, it's all about the depth, for me, it's about breadth. Like that's what informs my work and propels my work and allows me. And, and I think a lot of people never explore that option. They just assume everyone says, what are you going to be when you grow up? And that should be one answer. I'm a dentist. Or, that's so, it. You, you can't know, that's do anything it. else. And, and I just think that's so limiting, right? Like I can be a wife and a mom at the same time. Why can't I do these two things at the same time? And it's about like that passion, that engagement, what you bring to something, right? How much right. you want to do it, right? So so you talk about how you, you, the, the one feeds another and that sometimes that sparks new ideas. When I look at your art and you've brought handily, you've brought these these uh, these postcards. I'm gonna pull I'm gonna pull them out in front of me. Um, that that uh, you passed out of the conference you just came to. Yeah. And and if you had, there are so many different genres here yeah. that you're that, that you're working with. We've got everything from scenes of domestic life with women in them to to um, desserts, you've got this Just Dessert series, to works that have books and works that have, um, that, are, that are very designed, there's a, there's a lot of design and thought going yeah. on in those, almost abstracted, but mm-hmm. using books. And then you've got these still life elements that feature retro objects like oh, yeah. Olivetti typewriters and, and, uh, and, and cassette tapes and old school boom boxes. Is it fair to say that each one of these um, was a different shift in your life? Each one of these these periods? Um, yes and no. I would say they all have very related themes. Again, I'd say I'm sort of disruptive. That you know, there's I feel like there's so much pressure on artists to paint in one style or to have one subject matter. There is. It's almost like figure out your brand. Yeah, and that's be it. that brand. And if you change brands, you'll lose everybody who bought your last stuff. And all your credibility or it doesn't it delegitimizes you in some way. And again, I really fight against that. Who made up that? It goes role? to that who same issue that? of like, being I'm, lateral versus Yeah, and I just and I've heard other artists again that are like I wish I could just have pen names and you know create under these because I feel so limited. And for me, I sort of play a game with myself sometimes to create work that's very different than anything else I've ever created. Like I get a kick off of that like can I make something that somebody would look at and not necessarily know it was mine because that shows I'm thinking creatively right that shows that I'm stretching myself Mm -hmm. and when you do that it's constantly informing and shifting your work so that you know even if I paint some say in the domestic series and I leave it for a little while and I come back it propels that work because I've been working in a different way so Mm -hmm. it keeps it from becoming too stale or formulaic so I do have these series and I'll develop a whole body within that series but they sort of come out of different but also related ideas. So there's actually a lot more connection or relation between some of the series than there may seem to be. 
But for me, there's a different joy in working in all of those mediums or styles. Were you always thinking in terms of series? Um, usually I sort of start out with something and then if I get into it, it, it evolves into a so series. So you think, you think, okay, I'm going to experiment with this. And then you think there's something here that I'm I can gonna keep go, going. I can go. I, you know, I feel like I skipped a step. I, I need to go back. <laughs> okay. And this, the, 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 the period, the question that I've got about is how, when were you first making art? You're doing these graduate studies and then you're getting involved in specialties, John Hopkins and so forth. At what point did you start laying a brush down on, on uh, canvas on board you know i always did it growing up and i sort of just backburnered it when i went to school so there's actually i have an essay coming out in a book next month which if you want to read a funny story that's about the first time i took a museum lesson and was a very shy museum lesson you mean you're going like the st louis art museum like signed up for classes through them okay um because I liked to draw like things like flowers and parrots and stuff. And next thing I know, I'm drawing like nude Adonis and Aphrodite. And it was like the most terrifying, horrifying experience of my life. Why? Because it was something that was so foreign to me. It was something I wasn't good at. It was something that was so new and different. You know, I'm looking at these figures and I was like, I don't even have these parts. So I don't even know what I'm drawing. Right. It was so out of my zone, so to speak. But that experience sort of evolved me. It, it helped me to appreciate critique, seeing things through other people's eyes. It got me over the fears of, of you know, when you, when you reach that point that you want to create things, you want to get better. You want to try something hard. You want to try something different. But so I did that sort of growing up. And then, you know, I, I sort of, I didn't have time for it when I was in school because my major was very, uh, long and even though I did it in a short period of time it had no room for any electives and so I couldn't so pre- you felt stifled I, f- I did and I felt like I would have to start over at drawing one and by the time I would be done I would have you know made it two classes into it but not really where I wanted to be so I was uh I did one or two paintings maybe after I was married and I was teaching I was working at UCSF as a child life specialist I was teaching for a college um just north of San Jose. Um, but then I would, I left, um, teaching full time and stuff to stay home when I had, uh, my first child because I really wanted to enjoy the experience of mothering. And I was like, Hey, you know, we have this house and we have like nothing on the walls. I should pull out my old paints from high school and literally pulled out my old paints from so high it was, school. It was literally as an impulse to surround yourself with something right that and you it was cheaper for me with. to paint something than to go buy it right like it okay was, so, so what did you make you know i just it's some like simpler things like and and then it sort of started out so i painted this bowl of apples and one day i invited someone to dinner who was new in our ward and she was like i love this painting like can i buy it and i was like well okay and she was like i own this shop would you would you do a show and i was like what well. kind of shop like it was like a sort of like an antique shop, small um, sort of boutique gallery shop, like in a small okay. town. She New had England. other art there. Yeah, and as she well. did. She had connections, and, she, and, she and she'd sort of moved in, and and had some really beautiful art that she was selling in the spaces, and she would sort of highlight different artists. So, so was, was, like, was that a shock to think that all of a sudden I'm at this level that she thinks? I can, I can do play this. with those other right. artists. And I was like, I'm always up for a challenge, right? Like I've catered weddings. I've made celebrity wedding cakes. Like I just, like if something comes up, I'm like, why not? Why not try it? Right. So I did. So I painted all these paintings, you know, in okay, between nap time. I can't times. let the celebrity wedding cake 
comment go by without asking so, who the celebrity was. Okay, so I made Jenny Slate's wedding cake. You made Jenny Slate's wedding cake? Yes. Did you meet Jenny Slate? Yes. She was married to my cousin. Oh, my heavens. And, um, I wish so, we yeah. had. Okay, that's the second podcast. So, that's the second podcast right there. It we was love super awesome cake. I make great cake. Okay, so sorry. Go back. Okay. Go back. So, um, so then... I do these paintings and I was just like proud of myself for doing it. Right. Like it's, it's a risk. It's vulnerable to create. And I still, you know, like I was, I hadn't painted in years. So it was even just like, what do I feel like painting? It was did you, did you just put it on a canvas and then hang it on the wall with a wire that you got yourself? Yeah. Did you yeah. frame it even? Yeah, I framed some of them, but I went to this like discount place you could go to in Williamsburg, Virginia and like buy frames really cheap. And you know, they would custom make them, but it was still like, so I hauled up all these frames and you know, it was, yeah. And, I, and I ended up selling half the show. And really? I was thinking, if I sell one piece, I'm going to feel like I'm worth something. Is right? she but choosing the prices too? No, I was setting the I was setting. How the did prices. you know what price to set? I didn't. I was just like, I don't know, maybe something like this, which I think pricing is a terrible space for artists. And it's hard. It's, it, it I is, counsel it's artists very a lot hard. in our gallery about that. And it's something that, that it's... Some people it, are very hard. much by size. For me, a lot of it is time. I, I really think, and I, I'm too much probably of a softy in a lot of ways, but I want more art to be out there. I want people to have art. And well, it's, there's a lot of competing demands for me. In, in, in my experience, most artists undervalue their, their work and what it can sell I'd say for. that's true. And, and I, I'm just interested. Did you feel like because you sold half the show, did you think all of a sudden, you know what, I priced those too low? They need I to be. Didn't. They need to be higher. I didn't. I was just so happy that people liked my work, right? Huh. And it was just. And then it just sort of like grew and evolved and grew and evolved. And I never thought. I mean, I I really hadn't thought of ever having that as a professional experience. And at some point, you sort of realize this is my job, right? And were they and, all still lifes, by the way? Um, no, there were a few that were figurative, which I really had always shied away from I painted my son who is a very darling baby with these little blonde ringlet curls but so um, you, I've noticed in your your figurative work that um you tend to um no faces yeah tend to have no faces and um very strong and bold um lines um yeah it's a very that, illustrative did, that, quality did, did they yeah yeah in fact you? you have turned me on to an artist that I I didn't know his name, but I'd known his work. Uh-huh. Kobe Whitmore. Oh my goodness! I I must have spent in preparation for this interview. <laughs> my wife didn't. I was up for an hour and a half in the middle of the night, just going through Whitmore pieces, obsessed. Fabulous. He's my new my new obsession is Kobe Whitmore, but I can see the it, it's it's bold colors, but somebody who clearly came from from a uh, from a figurative standpoint. But your your first work that you're doing. Are you doing strong figurative work that looks no. like the domestic series that you did? It was much more impressionistic. And and it's it's hard to say how your work evolves, right? I think it's like the more you work, the more you come to trust your own feelings or what you want to say or where those influences come from. And the, the very interesting thing about Kobe Whitmore's work is I didn't encounter it till I was probably halfway through the domestic series. And when I encountered it and then I read about his process, I was like, this is my tribe. Like he's like this ancestor, right. Of me that I never knew about. But then when you, you, you know, even where he was like, I would hire the models, we would set up the photo shoot. I would take pictures. I would, and I was like, Oh my goodness, I would paint in acrylics because it had to be done quickly for the, you know, for lifestyle illustration publication that he was doing. And I was like, this, this, 
I, this totally resonates because we came to these sa- very similar places yeah. independently, but you're like, yes. And now I understand why I connect with your work. Right? I know I'm jumping around a little bit. Yeah. I want to talk about this. Domestic That's okay. Series. Remember we're all about the breadth and lateral. Here. Let, yeah. Let's, let's talk about this domestic series. And I want to talk about, I want to start with one. Okay. First of all, where, when were you doing these? I started doing these maybe eight years ago. Eight years ago. So the one I'm looking at has a woman who is sitting on on the oh, stairs, yeah. and and you can see her through the um, what's the word I'm looking banister for? Banister railings. Through the banister railings. The ba- yeah, the balustrade, and you see she's wearing high heel red shoes, legs very prominent, strong blue skirt, red top, and she is going through. A, 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 a clutch yes right and and uh there's there's something first of all and this is there's something about the male gaze right yeah. this is a <laughs> term we use all the time looks like an attractive woman right also looks like a powerful woman and i couldn't tell you exactly why i don't know if it's because she's um i mean she's not afraid of being a woman and exactly. being sexually confident right those legs are a dead giveaway (laughs) along with the high heels in my opinion maybe i'm wrong but also there's something really there's something about taking away her head because it's cut off at the very top that um and this is just me you know going through my art art historian trained analysis there's something anonymous about her but not objectifying about her at the same time and i don't know how you've achieved that because she doesn't look like she's inviting you to look at her in a sexual way. It's almost as if you've caught her at a brief moment where she's 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 moving. She's a power player. I don't know why that keeps coming back to my mind. Um, and I don't think about her in those sexual terms. I just think that's almost like a second thought. Like mm-hmm. she's she's beautiful, she's strong, but it's not about her being objectified. How do you, am I, am I on No, I think that that's really important because I think too, you know, my background in marriage and family, I think sexuality too is a, a topic we don't often address in LDS culture in the same way, but I believe it's a part of who we are, right? It's a part of our identity. It's part yeah. of our experience and a critical part of our identity and experience, right? Um, and so I think that that needs to not be treated as something shameful or problematic, right? right? But as something very straightforward as a part of our identity and who we are. And for me, I really, you know, I made the decision to crop the heads in this entire series because I like that it changes your ability um, to, you can see the piece in so many different ways that way. As soon as you put a face on it, somebody decides they either think that person is attractive or not attractive. They recognize the person, they don't recognize the person. Right. They get too caught up in the emotion or the expression of the face. And this pe- this whole series focuses on the action, right? On what the figure right. is doing. And I, and I just love sort of how, how is identity as much about what we do rather than how we look. See, I was waiting for you after I said all of that, which is a male gaze, and in a way of like somebody could be listening to this and saying, that man just told that woman who made that work what that painting was about. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? I was. I wanted you to contradict yeah. me. I yeah. wanted you to take me down and say, you know what, Micah? You no, are because I think I think we've come to a place where <laughs> where that's, you know, do we, there's another piece, yeah. you know, that's that's coming up in a museum exhibit. 
Yeah. This opening this weekend. And the title of the piece is... And this is, is your, a, wor- a museum exhibit that is featuring your work. Right. And where is it opening? In the Fitchburg Museum in Massachusetts. It okay. opens Sunday. The exhibit is People Watching Then and Now. Okay. And it's, it uses pieces from their permanent collection and a handful of pieces by contemporary what they would consider portrait artists in New England, even though some people would look at my work and say, this isn't traditional portraiture work. But it's about this sort of revealing and concealing aspects of painting, what we choose to disclose or not disclose. And I like my work to have a lot of different interpretations. I take a very sort of postmodern bent to things that I want somebody to come and look at this painting. And there aren't necessarily right or wrong answers to it there's like a hundred different reactions to it because to me that's where art needs to be right and and so this piece some people look at it and say this woman is trapped by domesticity other women's you know i say actually some of the thoughts i had in my mind as i painted this were the way that we limit ourselves by our own self-limiting thoughts or behaviors right that's what's trapping us in not somebody else making you do things it's what you choose to do um the way we represent the figure, the way we use color, the way, you know, we focus on all these things. I want it to say so many different things. And can it say different things when we look at it historically in different contexts? So that's a vintage clutch that I was passed down to me from my grandmother, right? So if this was of my grandmother's generation, what does that say about the experience of this woman versus a woman of my generation? How do you, how does your perception of that woman or her experience within the world, or even as you talk about the male gaze, would that woman in a, say, late 50s, early 60s context be viewed very differently than a woman who, say, has come home from work um, in our context today, right? And, and where do we assign that place of um, sexuality or appearance within the identity of a woman. And, I, I'm, and I'm very conflicted looking at this image about my own instincts, and I'm trying to figure out why it's... Part of it is because, you know, there's got to be an evolutionary anthropological reason for why we see things the way we do. It's like Rothko, for instance. I heard when he did the Seagram murals that were for the Four Seasons that he wanted everybody to stop eating when they saw them. He painted everything in red. But he didn't know that scientists would later find out that red induces hunger and blue constricts hunger. And so it had the opposite effect. But there are some things like red, you've got you've got white and you've got you've got very stark almost grisai colors around her. Yeah. Right? Then you have red shoes. And there's something about me as a man that when I see red on the shoes and in her blouse, it I immediately I don't know if it's it's something that I think, wow, that is racy right <laughs> that's what and, i wear to church on sunday and there's but but i don't think it necessarily needs to be no. and i kind of have this immediate reaction of being a man who lives today of you can't think that way it's not that way right it's not that way and i look and the color has i have some almost uninterpretable uninterpretable that's not the word not able to interpret <laughs> tongue tied um, way of 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 reacting to these colors that I can't even um, decipher of why I'm having such a strong reaction to color. It's a brilliant use of color oh, in this, you. but I am even taken aback as to why I have such a strong reaction to it. And I don't know. Um, you also have a lot of color in your shadows in what you're talking about. Just like when you talked with Day Talk Doll, the when you look at her leg, it's almost fades into that bright um that into that 
that uh, that that white that's on the wall behind her where she's sitting, and then it gets darker and darker and darker as it comes in. It reminds me of Wayne Tebow. Yeah, that there, I know is still... is an influence on you. Yeah, I, is I, that accurate? I think the clean colors. I tend to use a very bold palette. You know, I would say my work is you know very influenced by illustration. Um, by mid-century illustration and and so i tend to like these you know very clean uh, discreet use of color and you know it's funny how when i'm painting a piece i usually paint it in two or three layers i paint in acrylics right so why acrylics i love them and you know so many people sort of see them? them as like the the stepchild of, of art materials. Yeah, and I, I don't and ask why acrylics because I have an agenda. I don't. I'm no, just asking I, why. I, I'm just for uh, me they're I know so some people flexible. Their color, the way that I paint, it lends itself well toward my method. I like to paint fast. I like to put something down and see how I like it, and then I can change it. But you know, with oils, I would have to sit and wait. Um, as a very practically as a mother. You know, I I have three children. I also I had my first, but then I had seven miscarriages and. I had to be careful you what had I was seven th- miscarriages. Yeah. So you know, life isn't between always easy. Each child or between between my first and, how, and my second. Between, so yeah. and then you had two more children after those yes. miscarriages. How yes. many years between your first and second child? Uh, four and a half years. So it was in three years, and that oh was actually heavens. when I really started painting a lot. That was the time that I did that first solo show, and you know it. So I wouldn't say it was therapeutic in a direct sense because I actually work with therapeutic things, but I'd say doing generative activities helps you deal with challenges in life, right? You create things out of, um, difficulties, I guess it's, you know, I I think it's a way that gets you through hard things. So, so yeah, so that's, what was the first solo show? Um, that one that I talked about where the woman invited me to, uh, that was the show. That was the show. So that was actually two weeks after my second miscarriage at like 12 weeks. And it was when I was going to tell everyone, Oh, I'm having a baby. And then I was like, wait, never mind. I'm now like grieving. And (laughs) I, I were, I I could talk forever about just this one series of, of, of the women, but I want to, I want to talk about two more series before I let you go. Okay. And we, this is just, it's just too short. (laughs) <laughs> these these discussions. I want to talk about this boombox okay. you've got. Yes. Which sends me back to my breakdancing days. Oh, yeah. I had the breakdancing name. My I brother My brother was a professional dancer and choreographer. And Did he was you six have years the cardboard slabs? His name was yeah. His yes. name was Lightning and they named me because I was a little kid Papoose. Nice. I was Papoose. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so so this is, but but that's not what this is about. Don't make this no. about me. What, no. is, what is this about? You know what? I It's funny because for as much as, if you know me, I'm sort of a modernist and a present and future thinker and creator. I often use these like relics and objects and sort of cultural artifacts in my work. And this piece came out of, you know, it's been an interesting political climate lately. And that's, that's, an, that's a good word to use. And, you know, I have a lot of feelings about experiences and things that we've been going through culturally and that piece is titled take it to the streets and um so there's as you know i'm a little bit of a disruptor probably a little bit of protest in me that thinks you know when you don't agree with something you have to challenge that you have to use your voice and whether it's things from black lives matter or women and you know things that are going on in our contemporary world that need addressing that need talking about and so i love taking this hip-hop cultural 
icon, right, of the 80s that allowed people to go out and express themselves and and sort of using that in a different way. And, you know, it has even another personal story for me. When I lived in Turkey as a child, I remember it was in the 80s. And we lived in this apartment and I was always treated differently as an American child, like given a special reverence, I guess, so to speak, or respect, Uh, maybe because I had blonde hair, maybe because, you know, I had an American passport. I could go anywhere in the world, do anything I wanted. You know, I had a very privileged life by comparison. And I remember at times watching from the balcony of our apartment, the like teenage boys across the street who would go out and like dance and just knowing like I couldn't go down there and interact with them in the same way, right? Like because it wouldn't have been culturally appropriate or I was seen as somehow different, like something to be protected, something to be, you know, like we had guards on our bus with semi-automatic weapons. And I remember as a child thinking, why does this 18 year old boy have to sit here with a gun to protect me? Like I'm just Mm -hmm. as important as the kids on the Turkish bus. Right. So it raised in me a lot of questions of sort of equity, inequity, um, how we treat people, how we hmm. see some things as more important or less important. So that's a very personal um, experience that n- no one would know. There about. are other parts yeah. in the series. You have um, how many works were in this series? You know, you I've just been doing that series this year, so it's a brand new series. But so you, you know, know you have the mixtape. I have no idea, but the mixtapes just get me. So I keep those. Oh, they speak to this like existential experience that we all have. So they're the title for most of them is fast forward, rewind, or eject. Because in our lives, how many times do you want to go back to something you've experienced in the past? You've or do you just want to tapes that are go ahead here. to the future? Or you just want to eject, right? You just want out of your life. So This sends me back. I can't tell you how many times I made mixtapes, oh, had yeah. mixtapes. And and um, I've actually just ordered a tape player to go back and... and uh, and have them I still remember I think, the names of all my. I think that Spotify and and iTunes they can't replicate the experience. Oh, there's of, this tangible artifact, right? Yeah, if, and you and you would go through and you'd you'd want somebody to experience it in way, that sequence, in that order, in that. You know, yeah, and yeah. and you'd you'd want it to start off with a song that said something about who how you felt about somebody when you made it for them. I'm thinking about crushes who I oh, made yeah. them for, they made them for me, and then. Then you'd put in a song that totally mixed it up, right? And then you'd so it's sending these to, subtle messages, right? You're yeah. you're crafting this whole different emotional script, right? When you, when you created a mixtape, and yeah, and it's also about things becoming obsolete and changing. You know, for me, it's also a, a metaphor of parenting, and you know the way that subsequent generations and things become more advanced and evolved, and you still have this place of nostalgia, but it's it's different, right? It's yeah. a different technology. So, so. With any of my work, there's like one level of metaphor and then there's something totally else. And I'm totally yeah. happy with those all coexisting, right? Something do you very share them personal. with people outright like you do right now with me? Or when you put up a label, do you just, what do you do? Because you're obviously comfortable with other people's infantry, in, in, interpretations, interpretations yeah. including, Doesn't scare me at all. In, including piggish masculine <laughs> <laughs> perspectives that... No, so no. so this piece I did put up a description with it. It was in a museum exhibit earlier this year in the Attleboro Museum, and I would say that was the thing that would stop people is they would read it and go like, "Oh, like I like mixtapes, but I relate to this concept of life, right? This experience." And so I usually share some, but there's always in every piece like the boombox I just shared it, but there's usually always some other personal story that I hold back. There's some deeper yeah. part of that piece that no one knows about but me. There's this problem that I, I've 
I have it, a hard time reconciling with contemporary art. I'm training the tra- classical tradition. And that's the works are often completed through criticism, through other people's commentary or words, right? And and as an artist, I feel like that is, as a postmodern artist, you have to kind of live in that world where you expect people to have an opinion about your work and to, you know, quote unquote, complete it in that way. But but I find my own ability to complete an artist's work through my own opinion is ultimately unsatisfying most of the time. I like to hear what the artist has to say about what they're doing. So, I mean, I... I, There's so I, much word in talking about my art. Like my art has a lot of visual rhetoric, but if you really want to understand my work, you have to talk to me, yeah. right? Like and that's you how have I feel to. Talking that's to where you. the depth is. is okay. So we're almost out of time, but I have to. I have to ask you about the series because I've been watching you on Instagram making things for it. <laughs> it's it's I love the just cake. dessert series, right? And this is where you have these incredible desserts. In these beautiful, would it be fair to say like 50s paraphernalia that they're surrounded with, bread boxes and cake stands and wallpaper that is just like psychedelic and beautiful and cheerful. And and I I wonder, you know, on one hand, they're, they're beautiful still lifes where from an artistic perspective, it has everything you want out of still life. It's got the interaction of shape of color, of these these things that are actual objects, but they're also, as abstract shapes, it's very satisfying to see how they're placed together and the eye is drawn around the canvas. On a technical level, they've got everything you want, in my opinion. Thank you. The question that I, and, and just like the way you play with reflection and surface <laughs> and texture, so all brilliantly done. And so I know that I'm going over that very quickly because we're almost out of time. But what I want to know is the subtext. Oh, yes. I want you to tell me what's going on subtextually in these things they're all about metaphor so um for example the first piece i did in the series was called you want a piece of me which is probably (laughs) like a really provocative title again but i don't shy away from that but if you really want to know what the piece is about it's about this cake and the cake is facing you and there's a big slice cut out of the front of the cake right like a quarter of the cake is missing so you're looking straight into the center of this cake and but this is a piece about time okay so it's a piece about I have a lot of things that demand my time, right? A lot of things want a piece of me, right? In yeah. form of my time. And I only have 24 hours in a day. And I can cut that into like 17 pieces. I can cut it into four pieces. But it's only 24 hours in a day. And mm. I think that's that's something that's very relevant and pertinent in my life. So I was like, I want to paint a piece that's about this constant struggle to decide who gets what of my time. Who gets what of me? Right. There's another piece in that series that's called How It Looked in the Reflection, which is this pink cake called Best Birthday Cake. I have great stories about that cake, but this was also the recipe from the celebrity wedding cake. But this piece. So you see the cake. There's a piece of the cake. And then there's a reflection of this piece of the cake in this cake tender, this 1950s cake tender. And the cake is distorted. Right. You're seeing this piece, but it's distorted by this reflective surface. And so this piece is about body image it's about Hmm. um so again i love to speak from a woman and a woman's perspective um and i work with a lot of populations who have visible differences so i'm very what do you um, mean by that uh, different races different no have medical conditions that alter their appearance from typical so they live with the fact that they get stared at every day because they look different Hmm. and the way that that affects their sense of identity and so i love this piece because for me it talks about how you may see this piece of someone 
And what you're really not even seeing is the piece of them. You're seeing this distortion of a piece of them. And I think this is even how we see ourselves, you know, whether we judge someone based on their appearance or what we know about them, we're seeing this little piece, but you know, from a spiritual context, I'm like, no, there's this whole other part of them and you're taking out this little piece and then you're seeing some reflection of that. And that's not even accurate. It's not even what's there. It's not their potential. It's not. So it's a piece about cake and I get to make the cake and eat the cake as a part of this whole process, which is the best part. But I love to talk about powerful things, right? With, and none of with these, everyday objects. And and it seems to me that this is this is kind of the it's an ironic choice because you're 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 taking these everyday objects that people would otherwise treat casually. You're dignifying them through art and then they have a subtext that has huge huge identity issues. Yeah, social implications, psychological, so, social, cultural that's where those are the things that I have to talk about, right? That those are important well, to me in my world. I, I can't thank you enough for coming in and talking to us. I feel like this has got to be just the beginning of more discussions we have about your work. I am grateful you walked through this through the door <laughs> that well, we it's caught been you. My pleasure. And that we got you all the way here from Sutton. And and I encourage you, and I think I can speak for the entire listener public of this podcast. <laughs> That you should open up your uh, your your cake and patisserie in Sutton to be your own Luke Steiner, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so that we good. can come eat there and buy art while while we're eating. If you come visit me, I I will cook. I will I'll always there's always treats at my house. So. Oh my well, thank you so much, Leslie Graff, for being here. Thank part of you. I'd like to thank Leslie Graff for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information about Leslie Graff's current show that's taking place in Massachusetts. For more information uh, about that, go to our website, to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Zion Art Society. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.